Well, we're in John chapter number 21. This is uh, the last of the book of John. I can't remember. I didn't look at my calendar or schedule just to see how many months that it's taken to preach through the book of John. But I got to say, I have enjoyed preaching through the book of John, uh, probably like nothing else that I've enjoyed in my preaching. Uh, what a great book the book of John is. If you're a new Christian or if you're a struggling Christian, I would encourage you to spend a lot of time reading the book of John and reading the book of Romans. Those are two. If you don't know where to start in the Bible and you want to start reading it, man, you just camp out in John and Romans for a long time and let all of those truths saturate into your heart and mind and it will build a foundation and it will certainly help you as you read the rest of the Scripture. I wouldn't advise starting in the book of First Chronicles. So-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. I'm, I, I'm not minimizing the Word of God. It's all important and it's all God's Word, but sometimes we um, we need something that we are able to digest. And uh, I like John and Romans. I like reading in the Psalms. Always find something comforting and encouraging, something that I can relate to in the Psalms. And then, of course, Proverbs always speaks to my heart. Sometimes it... Uh, kind of rips my face off and convicts me because of the way I'm behaving and thinking. Boy, Proverbs, just uh, you can read two or three verses and just get more than you can handle in just a little bit of reading. So uh, that's just a little plug for reading the Scripture. Hope you spend time daily in the Word of God. John chapter number 21 is where we're starting. I'm going to go ahead and give you the title. Normally I read the text and give you the title, but going to do it a little bit differently here this morning. Our title is, When the Lord Unexpectedly Shows Up. And uh, I want to say this by way of introduction, that the Lord shows up when He wants to. He's God. He's not a genie in the bottle that you can rub the bottle and just have Him at your command. He's God, and He shows up when He wants to. He's not like uh, some people's mommy and daddy that they can manipulate in order to get their way and their will. He is a supreme, sovereign God. He is holy. He's righteous. He's unchangeable. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. I appreciate a God who is more stable than I am. He's our security because He cannot change. He cannot lie. He cannot sin. And all of those things are what make Him God, and it's very different than what we are. The Bible says in John chapter number 3, the great, uh, the great chapter on being born again, in verse number 8, it says, "...the wind bloweth where it listeth." That wind is the Holy Spirit, the presence of God. It blows where it listeth. That listeth is an old English word that's a great word. And to kind of make a make a, a, a lengthy definition short, it simply means that God shows up when He wants to. The wind blows where it wants to blow. Uh, when they have a, a naval term, they say when a ship is leaning to one side, say, they'll say that it's listing to the port side. And what that means is it has an inclination. And that word inclination means that God has an inclination to show up when He wants to, and we cannot control God showing up any more than we can control the wind. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, 
but canst not tell whence it cometh or whither it goeth, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. I remember when God showed up in my life. It wasn't at a time that I was inviting Him to show up, but He showed up right on time, and it was right when I needed Him to show up, and I'm so thankful. Whether God has shown up in your life for quite some time, one thing I do know for sure, God wants to show up, and God will show up. And we're going to pray here in just a moment that perhaps maybe God would show up right here in this service this morning. Join me as we go to the Lord in prayer and ask His blessings. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank You, Lord, for Your goodness, Your grace, and Your truth. We thank You for the privilege to be able to open up the pure words of God and to be able to present these truths, this great chapter in the Bible, to this congregation today. We pray that You'd help us to communicate clearly and concisely. We ask for the blessings and the help and the power of the Holy Spirit We pray, Father, that you would speak to hearts. God, we pray that perhaps maybe, maybe the wind would show up here today, that, Lord, at least we'd feel that gentle, cool breeze of the presence of the Holy Spirit. I pray that our hearts and minds would be attentive, remove all the distractions and all of the clamor and the things that Satan throws in our way to try to keep us from receiving the Word of God. We pray that you would bless, Lord. When this is all said and done today, we pray that you will have received the glory and honor from your word being presented. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. When the Lord unexpectedly shows up, look at verse number one of our chapter. It says, after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And on this wise showed he himself. There were together Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and two other of his disciples. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a fishing. They say unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. The first thing that I would say to you this morning when the Lord unexpectedly shows up, I'd like to deal with this subject. When you don't know what to do. You think about it, the disciples had been through quite a lot in just the previous days and weeks. They had went through the crucifixion of their master, the one that they were following. They had went through the sadness and the despondency of Wow, we thought that he was going to be the king and the Messiah, and now he's gone. And I'm sure that some of them were doubting, and some of them were concerned. And then Jesus starts to appear and show himself in a resurrected form, and then their hearts were elated, and they were... In fact, the Bible says that some of them believed not for joy. You know, when you think about that, sometimes an emotional reaction to something can actually cloud our faith because we're not able to think about what we're believing. We're not able to allow it to sink in because all we're focused on is what we're feeling. And so the disciples had been through that and then Jesus, he kind of departs again. And so they're just kind of left with, wow, what what do we do? There are times in our life, brothers and sisters, when it seems like that the Lord is nowhere near 
and he hasn't been around for a while. And we don't know what to do. What do we do when we don't know what to do? Well, first of all, I would say from our text here that I would say that we need to stick together. It says here that Peter and Thomas and Nathaniel, and you talk about a variety of personalities and people here. You've got Peter who was a fisherman. You've got John and James, the sons of Zebedee. We know them as the sons of thunder. These were fishermen. And then you've got Thomas, doubting Thomas, who had just the previous chapter had went through all of his doubting and Jesus had showed up and he'd been through all of that up and down and fear and then faith and just he'd been all over the place. Well, he says, I'm going to go fishing with you. We find here that Nathaniel of Cana of Galilee, if you'll recall, he's the one that he was the thinker. He was the one that Jesus found there sitting under the fig tree and He was praying and meditating, and we don't know exactly what all had transpired, but when Jesus said, before I saw thee, I knew thee in the fig tree, something there in Nathaniel's mind and memory, it clicked, and it's like, wow, how did Jesus know what was going on there? There was something that only Jesus and Nathaniel knew, and of course, Nathaniel says, can any good thing come out of Galilee? And So you had all of these different personalities. We find here that there's two other disciples that are unnamed. I have no idea which two that those were, but obviously not all of the disciples were here. Maybe they all should have been there, but where were the rest of them? Maybe they got so discouraged that they went home, or maybe they were thinking about quitting. We don't know where they were, but one thing I'll say, when you don't know what to do, stick with God and stick with God's people. It's a great source of encouragement and fellowship. You know, sometimes this boat goes through some rough and rocky waters, but it's nice to not be alone in the boat. Sometimes when we don't feel like coming to church, maybe you're going through a trouble or a trial or a grief. It's hard to be around people. Most of us, I'm me including, when I'm going through a really tough time, I want to crawl in a cave and just leave me alone. And yet I found from experience, sometimes that's the worst thing that I could do, is to be left to my own thoughts and my own feelings. I have a tendency to throw some really big pity parties. How about you? I mean, I can pitch a big one. And uh, that pity party, sometimes it takes being around other people and getting my focus off of myself in order to recover from that depression, despondency, or discouragement. The disciples were discouraged, but praise the Lord, they were sticking together. Secondly, I would say, do what you know to do. Do what you know to do. There's times where we don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know what we're supposed to do. So we need to just get back to the basics. Peter said, I go a fishing. I've studied and meditated about that a number of times at different times in my ministry. And I haven't fully figured out if Peter's doing the right thing or the wrong thing. I know that he had already heard that Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. I don't know if Peter was rejecting that command and it's like, I'm just going to go back to my old life. I I think that's certainly a possibility and I've seen believers do that. When they get discouraged and life doesn't pan out the way that they thought that it would, they just go back to the old life. 
But it's possible, it's possible that maybe the disciples were all sitting around and Peter being a very, Peter was a strong leader. Peter wasn't one to just sit around and do nothing. Peter wasn't one to just be quiet and say nothing. And so Peter thought, hey, rather than just sitting around here and spiritually sucking our thumbs and worrying and fretting, let's do something. What do we do? Peter said, let's go fishing. I don't know about all this other stuff that's going on, but I know how to fish. And some of the other disciples thought, yeah, that's a good idea. We're going with you. What do you do when you don't know what to do? Just do what you know. You know, sometimes it's a time in life when we don't know what God's direction is for us to do. He doesn't know what kind of ministry. Maybe you're in a position in life where you're seeking a new job or a new location or a new occupation. Whatever the case may be, sometimes we're in this place where we're not content with where we're at. We don't know what tomorrow holds. I know many of you have been positions where you don't know if the company that you're working for is going to go belly up next week and whether you'll have a job or not. What do you do when you don't know what to do? Just do what you know. Go to work. Clock in. Do the best that you can. Quit worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow and just do what you know to do today. There's times when you don't feel or sense that the Holy Spirit is telling you what to do. Hey, look, just go to the Bible and say, hey, this thing, this much I know is that God wants me to be holy. The Bible says, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification. So when you don't know what to do, do what you know to do. And you can find many of those commands for the will of God right there in the Bible. In fact, I'd say to you here this morning that if you're not willing to obey that which is written in the Bible, then why would we think that God would give us some kind of supernatural guidance if we're not walking in the light that He's already revealed to us? What do you do when you don't know what to do? Do what you know to do. And then thirdly, when you don't know what to do, keep on going through the night. The disciples, verse number 4, look at it. But when the morning was now come. The previous verse said that they had caught nothing. They fished all night long and they didn't catch a thing. What did they do? They kept going through the night. I remember we used to take my son fishing and after about two casts, if there were no bites, he was done. I remember when I'd go fishing with my grandpa After one cast and no bites, I'm throwing rocks in the water. (laughs) As I've gotten older, I've gotten a little more patient. In fact, after you've caught a few fish here and there, you get a little bit more patient because you know that fishing can change instantly. You can fish all night long and then all of a sudden, boom, it's on. Those of you that like to fish, man, that's a good feeling. I've had times when I've been fishing and just nothing. You don't think there's any fish in the pond. You think that something killed all the fish, and then all of a sudden you can't keep them off your hook. So fishermen have enough experience. Listen, as believers, 
Has there ever been a time when God's failed you? Has there ever been a time when you thought maybe He was getting ready to fail you? Yeah, but did He? Never. He's never failed you. Why is it that we forget about those times when the Lord stretches our patience and stretches us and we get to the point where we think that we're about to break and we're just certain we're going to break. And guess what happens? The next morning comes and then the next morning and we find that God was there all along. What do you do when you don't know what to do? Keep going through the night. The Scripture says in Psalm 30, verse number 5, For His anger endureth but a moment. In His favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but praise the Lord, joy cometh in the morning. Hang in there, believer. God's never lost a battle. He's never failed. He's never lied. His promises are absolutely sure. And He's always, always right on time. What do you do when you don't know what to do? Stick together. Do what you know to do. Keep on going through the night. Secondly, number two. I like to say this, when Jesus doesn't reveal Himself, it doesn't mean that He's not there. Look at verse 5 through 7. Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? They answered Him, No. And He said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, the writer of this gospel, by the way, the disciple whom Jesus loved, saith unto Peter, it is the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girt his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked and did cast himself into the sea. When Jesus doesn't reveal himself, it doesn't mean that he's not there. How often does God show up with a question? Children, have ye any meat? He knew the answer to that question. He knew that they'd been toiling all night long and taken nothing. How about when God showed up? The first question that God ever asked, Adam, where art thou? God knew where Adam was. God wanted Adam to know that God knew where he was. How about when God said to Cain, where's your brother? How many times does God show up with a question, not a question that he doesn't know the answer to, but a question that he's confronting us so that we will discover, know, and understand the answer to that very question. You know, folks, there is a process in which God manifests Himself. We see it here in this passage. First of all, number one, He gives direction. In verses 5 through 6, the Lord Jesus says, cast the net on the other side of the boat. Now this had happened months or perhaps years before. I didn't necessarily research the chronology, but there is a passage there in the Gospels where if you'll recall, Jesus did the same thing when He manifested Himself and His power to the disciples. He said, cast the net on the other side of the boat. If you recall, Peter, who is the great subject of this chapter, Peter said, 
Okay, Lord, we fished all night, but nevertheless, at thy bidding, I'll do it. Peter was really saying to the Lord, look, Lord, you're, you've been a carpenter. I've been a fisherman. You're the Messiah. You're the teacher. We'll leave the teaching to you, but leave the fishing to me. I know a little bit more about fishing than you do. How often, brothers and sisters, do we have actions and attitudes where it almost seems like that we're telling the Lord, look, God, I know more about this. You, you just stick to being God. And you run the universe, but I know more about what I need to do. I, I got this under control, God. And so God shows up and He gives a direction. Not an explanation, just a simple direction. If you want God to show up in your life, the first step that I would encourage you to take is to obey the direction that He gives you. If He has given you direction, if there's things that you know His Word says, something that God has showed you that is right, that you need to start doing, or something that's wrong that you need to stop doing, God's not going to show up in your life until you're first willing to take that direction. The disciples were at least experienced enough to... uh They didn't recognize that it was Jesus yet, but they'd been through this before. And so they did it. They said, I don't, I don't know why. Maybe they just had this attitude of, yeah, what's it going to hurt? It's not like we've been catching anything on this side of the boat. We know from experience that this is the side that normally we catch fish, but, you know, we've been fishing all night. You know, it's interesting how many people will argue for their way of doing it at the same time complain about their life being a mess. <laughs> How often have I tried to help people that have come to me for advice and their life is in a mess and I give them admonition from the Scripture and they just kind of argue with every point that you make? Pretty soon it's like, you know what, I, I don't, I'm not quite sure what you're looking for from me. I'll listen and I'll care and I'll pray for you. But so often we want our problems fixed, but we don't want to take direction from the Lord. It's kind of like the person that, <laughs> the person that, uh, you ever had your GPS navigate you to the wrong place? It doesn't happen as much anymore, but boy, when it was fairly new, it was just, it was a, What's the word I want? It was, um, you just didn't know what was going to happen. How's that? That wasn't eloquent, but you get it, right? We've had it take us on wild goose chases and places that cost us literally an hour and a half of driving total to get to the place where we needed to be. And yet, sometimes when someone gives you directions, and they're right in their directions, but I've had times when my wife said we need to be going that way. I was sure that we should be going this way. And it's like, no, we're going to keep going this way because I'm right and you're wrong. What's so funny about that? 
Well, you know what? She's done the same thing with me too. That she thought she was right. Sometimes we live our life that way. We're just certain that we're right. But we are going the exact opposite direction that we need to go. And you're never going to get to the right destination in life until you take the right direction. It's just as simple as the common sense of that statement. So it starts with direction. And then number two, it has, there has to be a response. Verse six, they, they did it. And then number three, you have a blessing. Verse number seven, they started hauling in fish. And it was then and then only that they recognized that, hey, that's the Lord. Sometimes if we will obey when we don't understand, and God blesses because we obey, all of a sudden, this wonderful thing happens in our life. All of a sudden, God is manifest in our life. He becomes real. Why? Because He blessed us. Because we, by faith, without understanding, we just simply obeyed His commands. We obeyed His directives. And He blessed us and showed ourselves that He was strong. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It says that he that cometh to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Brothers and sisters, if you'll obey the Lord, whether you understand Him or not, He will in His time bless you and that blessing will manifest the reality of His presence. Listen, you cannot explain away the supernatural blessings of God that come by having faith and trust in the Lord's words. Now I'm going to give you just two side notes. These are kind of rabbit trails, but I guess they're okay rabbit trails as long as we acknowledge them as rabbit trails. Two side notes. I want you to notice here this team of John and Peter. Notice what a good team that they made. John was a man of discernment. John was the first one that discerned that the man on the shore, that we can't really recognize who he is. He's just a little bit far away. We heard his voice, but we didn't know who he was. John discerned and said in verse number 7, It is the Lord. John had great discernment. Peter was a man of great action. First thing you know, as soon as John discerned who it was, Peter throws on his coat and he jumps in the sea and he starts swimming to shore. It's just like when Peter and John ran to the tomb. John was the one that outran Peter. He discerned that the tomb was empty, but he couldn't go inside. He just couldn't bring himself to do that. But Peter, the man of action... He jumped right inside. He wanted to know and he wanted to see. What a great team that they made as they uh, each had different personality and different gifts. I would encourage all of us that as we work together in the ministry, we're all very different. God doesn't want us to all be the same. He wants us to have the unity of the faith. He wants us to be of one mind and one accord, striving for the faith of the gospel He wants us to have that everybody be focused on pleasing the Lord rather than self. There's all kinds of ways that that unity and that camaraderie can be destroyed by pride and selfishness. But I tell you what, that doesn't mean that we're all the same. 
And when you take people that God has blessed in different ways and they start working together, it's a wonderful thing. I shared with the men recently that you take Belgian horses that can pull a massive amount of load. They say that one Belgian horse can pull about 8,000 pounds by himself. You take that Belgian horse and you team it up with another Belgian horse, and those two horses combined can pull anywhere from 20 to 24,000 pounds. That's not double. 8,000 plus 8,000 is 16,000. They can pull more together than each one could separately combined. Now you take those same two, you take two Belgian horses that were raised together and trained together and you team them up and they can pull between 32 and 34,000 pounds. You know, that's what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives is He wants us to yoke up with Him. Jesus said, take my yoke upon me, upon you and learn of me for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We need to yoke up with the Lord Jesus Christ together, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The second side note, that every time that I read this text, and as a pastor, pastoring in the year 2019, I think that it's imperative that I bring out this truth because it's needed today. This is May, the middle of May, and already the weather's starting to get warm. Already the clothing is coming off. Oh no, preacher, here you go. Well, we notice here that Peter is fishing. The Bible says that he was naked, and so he put on his fisher's coat. That doesn't mean, listen, Peter was not stark naked out there fishing. I know that because the rest of the men were still in the boat with him. And I got news for you, I ain't fishing with nobody like that. And nobody in their right mind would. It's like, what is wrong with you? What it means is that, I mean, he's a fisherman, just like a construction worker, and he's out there fishing, and he's got his shirt off. Soaking in the rays. Getting skin cancer. What's melanoma? I started to say mesothelioma. What is that? What is that? Oh, okay, it's something. (laughs) He's fishing with his shirt off. He's around a bunch of men. But I just find that so ironic how the Holy Spirit reveals this to us, that he puts on his coat before he jumps in to swim. Why? Because he knows that as soon as he gets to the shore, he's going to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. I'll tell you the problem today, and there's many problems today, but the problem with all of the nakedness and the immodesty that we find among Christianity today is that so many believers, it's been too long since you've been in the real presence of Jesus Christ. You get in the presence of Jesus Christ just like Adam did in the garden. Hey, he had sewed fig leaves together. But when God showed up, Adam said, 
I heard your voice and I was afraid because I was naked. Those fig leaves didn't cover enough. And when God shows up, Adam was very, very self-conscious. He was ashamed of his nakedness. He was able to blush. And we've got a culture today that doesn't know how to blush. I go in public places and I see how people are dressed and I just think, wow, did your mama not teach you any better? And then I see mama. It's like, nope. And and by the way, just because the skin is covered doesn't mean that it's covered. Tights, leggings, things that show the form of the body. I don't care whether you like what I'm saying or not. It's the truth. It is immodest. And it's embarrassing. You're wearing underwear in public. There are things that need to be covered. And if you'll get in the presence of Jesus, then um, you'll have that shame and that modesty. It's a heart problem. And you know, when, when our behavior starts, when we start allowing little sins in our life, We start feeling guilty, and that guilt starts building up, and it's not been dealt with. We haven't gotten it right, we haven't corrected it, the guilt's piling up, and we feel dirty. And when we feel dirty, we don't like to go in the presence of the Lord. We stop reading our Bible, we stop praying, because all of that guilt is between us and God. Our conscience is defiled, and so rather than coming close to the Lord, we just kind of At first, we just kind of ignore Him, and then we avoid Him. And the next thing you know, we're so far away from Him that we can have behavior that it doesn't bother our conscience anymore because we're not looking at the Lord. We're just looking around and seeing, well, everybody else is doing it. And that's the reason that people who are living their life like that don't like to get around really sanctified, holy Christians that have standards and separation. They don't like that because it just, oh, they just think they're better than me. They're holier than thou. And we get called judgers and haters and all of that stuff. I shared with the Sunday school class this morning. I saw a billboard over near Fort Dobbs. I didn't see the context of it. I don't know what ministry or organization put it up. I drove by and I just glanced and I saw the the Bible verse that says, He that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Well, that's Scripture. I agree with what Jesus said, don't you? Jesus said it. We ought to agree with it. But I scratched my head and I thought, why would that be the verse that you would pick for a billboard in a culture like ours today that's just rampant with wickedness? Why would that be the one that you pick? Well, I'll tell you why. Because the philosophy of this world that is saturated Christianity tries to tell you that if you preach like I'm preaching right now and that you rebuke things that are sinful and unrighteous, that you are casting a stone and you shouldn't do that unless you're absolutely perfect. Besides Jesus Christ, who has has ever been without sin? 
If that is the way that that verse applies, then why did the Word of God say in 2 Timothy chapter number 4 that a preacher is supposed to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long-suffering, patience, not control, with all long-suffering and doctrine? Why would the Lord say that we're supposed to give people the thus saith the Lord? I'll tell you what, Jesus said, let him that is without sin cast the first stone. He's talking about killing that adulterous woman. He's not talking about rebuking her. He's not talking about saying, listen, lady, your adultery is causing you, you are, you are going to be judged by God. You need to repent and you need to get that right. That's not casting a stone. That's lovingly rebuking and trying to help somebody because, after all, is not the wages of sin death? If somebody has got behavior going on that's going to result in death in their life, how Christian and how righteous is it to just be quiet and not say anything? Because I'm not sinless. See how ridiculous that the philosophies of the world that have saturated the Christian church have become. We've gotten so far away from the Bible. Guilt, discouragement. We get just like the disciples. Peter was discouraged. Just didn't seem like that the Lord was present in his life anymore. So what did he do? Takes his shirt off and starts acting like he used to act before he became a disciple. We need to beware of that behavior. The devil loves to use Scripture as long as he can take it out of context. And then my last point this morning, number three, when you failed, it doesn't mean that you've been forsaken. We read here in verse number, let's see where I want to start here. It says in verse number eight, and the other disciples came in a little ship for they were not far from land, but as it were 200 cubits dragging the net with fishes, as soon then as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon, and bread. Jesus saith unto them, Bring of the fish which ye have now caught. You don't find anywhere where the Lord says, Hey boys, what are you doing out there fishing? What are you, stupid or something? He just says, Come on guys, I got some fish, got some bread for you. I know you're discouraged. I know you're kind of afraid. You don't know what to expect tomorrow. But just come on, let's have some fellowship. That's our Lord, folks. And so they brought their fishes. The net wasn't broken. And Jesus said in verse 12, come and dine. And they all recognized that it was Him. And they took that bread and that fish. And this was the third time, according to verse 14, that Jesus showed Himself to them. Look at verse 15. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? I don't know if Jesus was the these of that, if he's talking about the fishing or if he's talking about the other disciples. Maybe we'll find out when we get to heaven if it will matter then. But I know one thing, Jesus knew what he was making a comparison with to Simon Peter. And he said, do you love me? more than anything else that is in your life? And so Peter responded, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, 
Lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? How many times did Peter deny the Lord? Three times. That's relevant. I would encourage you to just, just dismiss all of this agape phileo stuff because it's just not true. You can look that up yourself. It's just, it's, it's been told so much in pulpits that people believe it to be so. But you researched how the word agape and phileo appears in the scripture. You're going to find no distinguishing difference. Some, somebody preached a message and it sounded real cool and everybody loved it and now everybody believes it. But it's just not true. I would dismiss that and say, hey, sometimes these little things can be distractions and we lose the context of what's really going on. Peter denied the Lord three times, and so Jesus says three times, Peter, do you love me? That was relevant to Peter. That was important. That meant something to Peter. It aggravated him, but I guarantee you the Lord, and he always knows just what to say to make his point in our hearts. Each time, Peter would say, you know I love you. And each time the Lord would say, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. In Luke 22 and verse number 31, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. Boy, the devil really did. He worked overtime on Simon Peter, that man of action that was actually going to do something about what he believed. He wasn't just going to sit on the truth. He wasn't going to be no hearer of the Word of God only. He was going to be a hearer and a doer. Boy, you want to be someone that's dangerous to the devil, you be a hearer and a doer. If you want to be someone that's dangerous to yourself, be a hearer but not a doer. Peter The devil was working overtime on him, but verse 32, the Lord says, But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted. Jesus didn't say, if you're converted. Jesus said, when you're converted, strengthen your brethren. Listen, folks, when you fail, that doesn't mean that you've been forsaken. Whatever has happened in your past, whatever kinds of sins or failures... Uh, faith failure, behavior failure, I mean, giving in to a temptation that has been besetting you your entire life. You can have victory. And just like the Lord Jesus believed in Peter, the Lord Jesus believes in you as well. Just because you failed doesn't mean that you're forsaken. Just because God has put you on the shelf for a time being doesn't mean that He sent you to the dump. Praise the Lord for His mercy and for His grace. Have you ever noticed how that the Peter who writes in the New Testament, you read First and Second Peter, he sounds totally different than the Peter that speaks up all the time in the Gospels? I mean, he's a, at one point he says, Oh, far be it from thee, Lord. And Jesus said, Get thee behind me, Satan. Uh, Peter says, uh, Lord, let us build three tabernacles. I mean, Peter was always off track with his, uh, you know, being a man of action, and he was impetuous, and oh, he was strong in character, but he was weak in his faith. 
But when he writes in First and Second Peter, you just look at that and you go, wow, that's not even the same man. Why? He learned and he grew. Sometimes, and it's interesting and ironic that the name Peter, it means a stone. We call him a rock. It's interesting how that the Lord, as a master sculptor, took and carved and chipped away at Peter the rock and turned him into a beautiful sculpture that could serve the Lord Jesus. Listen, just because you fail doesn't mean that God's done with you. He's not finished. In fact, your greatest work may yet be in the future. No matter how old you are, no matter what you've done in the past, God still wants to use you if you will just stick with Him. Don't ever let the devil convince you that God's done with you. You can repent. You can get right. And you can follow the Lord Jesus. You can get on track today. I don't care if you've been off track for 50 years. You can get back on track today. And you know what? The Lord will never trust you to do His will until you trust Him with your life. Look at this, uh, look at this verse right here in verse number 18. Jesus says to Peter, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldest. Peter, when you were young, you had control over where you wanted to go. You wore the clothes that you wanted to wear. You made those decisions. But he says, when you get old, he says, you're going to stretch forth your hands and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. He's talking about the death that Peter would die being crucified upside down on a cross. They girded him and they attached him to that cross and they overpowered his strong will, and they took away the control that Peter had in his life. But you know what? Peter was willing to go and suffer for the glory of God. He said it earlier. He said, I'm ready to go and die for you. But he wasn't ready then, was he? But now he was ready because God had chiseled away all of that unnecessary stuff and Peter's stubborn will. And praise the Lord, Peter was willing. You know, the control that we have over our life is just a facade to begin with. It's kind of like uh, years ago, I went down to Disney World with my nieces and nephews, and some of them were real little, and so I rode some of the rides with them. I'm in my 20s, and so I'm spending time with them, and I don't remember the name of the ride. Some of your parents might know what it is. But there's this little track and they've got these race cars that are on this track and they just go around real slow. But you sit down inside of it and I barely fit. But there's a steering wheel. And you know, all these kids and myself included, we're steering right and left. But you know what? It's just going right on track. You know, if you, if you have not surrendered your will and your life to the Lord, you're as foolish as I was sitting in that car trying to go right and trying to go left, thinking I'm controlling my life. But I didn't have any control over my life. God had control already. Oh, I don't want to surrender to the Lord. He might, he might make me do something that I don't want to do. He might make my life miserable. He might make my life uncomfortable. You think He needs your permission to do that? He didn't have Job's permission, did He? 
you know what? You might as well just take your hands off of the safety bar on the roller coaster and just enjoy the ride. Because hanging on is not keeping you any safer or not controlling your life anymore. You might as well just let God have His way in your life. It might just be fun. I'm amazed that when Peter started trusting the Lord, the Lord trusted Peter, arguably with his most prized possession, his sheep, his lambs, the one, the ones that he died for, the ones that he redeemed. And Peter said, you know what? When you're converted, strengthen your brethren. You're not, you're not thrown away, Peter. Yeah, you've got some scars and you've got some problems, but when you're converted, when you get it right, I'm going to trust you with my most prized possession. I got good news for you, brother and sister. God's not done with you yet. He wants to use you in ways that you cannot even imagine. In conclusion, in conclusion, I want to point out here in verse number 20, then Peter turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following which leaned on his breast at supper and saith, Lord, what is, uh, which is, uh, verse 21, Peter seeth him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? We know the rest of the chapter. The Lord looks at him and says, what's it to you, Peter? Just follow me. Don't worry about what everyone else is doing. Just follow God. Just follow Jesus. Get your eyes on the Lord and quit worrying about what everybody else is doing and just follow the Lord. Take your hands off of that pretend control. I used to coach hockey years ago. I was coaching my son's roller hockey team and there was a new kid that was on my team. They'd moved from somewhere up in the northeast and they'd kind of come from a hockey culture and this was just a young boy and he, he had he had the equipment, and he had nice equipment, and you could tell that he knew how to skate a little bit, but he'd never really played any organized hockey. And so I was just getting to know this kid. He was new to me, and so he would be doing drills, and I would see something that he was doing that was totally wrong, that he needed to correct, or he was never going to improve. And so I'd start to instruct him, and before I'd even get to the meat and potatoes of the instruction, before I'd really even get three or four words into my sentence, this young man, seven, eight, nine years old, he'd start doing this. I know, I know, I know. And I thought, no, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't know. And so I thought, well, he's not listening to me. And so then he'd keep making mistakes and I'd try to instruct him. I know, I know, I know. And after about three or four attempts at that, you know what I finally did? I didn't try to help him. I figured he's going to have to figure it out the hard way and the long way because he won't take my instruction because he thinks that he already knows but as I look at him, I think he doesn't know anything. 
I wonder how often that Jesus looks down at our life and we think that we know what's best for us and He's trying to tell us, but we won't listen. What do we do when the Lord unexpectedly shows up? I'm going to close with this verse. I love this verse. Isaiah 55, verse number 6 says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call ye upon Him while He is near. Has God showed up in your mind today? Has God shown up in your heart? Something that has been said that you could honestly say, wow, that applies to me. I would encourage you this morning to seek Him. This is a time when He can be found. Call upon Him while He's near. Oh, preacher, maybe I'll just do it next week. Next week's service. Maybe I'll do it tonight in the service. I have no way of knowing if God will speak to you the way that He's spoken to you this morning again. I have no way of knowing if you'll have another opportunity. But one thing I do know, Isaiah 55, verse number 6, is God's words to all of us. When God shows up, whether we expected Him or not, we need to seek Him. We need to call upon Him. We need to respond and yield to Him. I'm so glad that the Lord is so long-suffering and merciful. You might have rejected Him yesterday, but He's here and you can receive Him today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank You for Your unexpected appearances. I thank You, Lord, that Some 34, 35 years ago in my life, when I was living a sinful, wicked life, I thank You for that day. I don't know the date, Lord, but I remember the place and I remember what You said to me. I didn't want You to show up when You did, but You did, and I'm so thankful that You did. I wish that I would have yielded to You then. I've got some heartache. I've got some scars because I didn't yield, but Lord... I thank you that a year later that you didn't give up on me. That you kept calling me and kept speaking to me and kept reproving me and rebuking me. And I thank you, Lord, that you got through this stubborn heart and this thick head of mine. Lord, I pray for each and every one of us here today. Perhaps there'd be someone that is in the same boat that I was in that 34 years ago, that just being stubborn and strong-willed. And I pray, Father, that You'd break through and they'd yield and recognize You and follow You. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like you to remain seated with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. I'd like to let the Lord just have some time to work in our hearts. And some have come to the altar. I'd like to invite you to come. If you've got a need, maybe maybe you need to come to this altar and say, Lord, it sure has been a long time since I've felt your presence in my life. It's been a long time since I really felt that you spoke to me. Maybe you just need to follow that pattern and obey the Lord and trust Him and let Him bless you for it. Test Him.
Find out if He's real. Test Him if He really does want to bless you for believing Him, for following Him. Well, you can't go wrong that way. If you need to come, the altar is open.